0: Hey everybody, how you doing out there? This is Evan Brand back with the Not Just Paleo podcast. Today we had Dr. Peter Osborne on the show and it was an awesome podcast. It's loaded with information so definitely get your pen and pencil ready. I wanted to give you a little bit more info about him before we get into it. He's the clinical director of Town Central Wellness down in Sugarland, Texas which is right around Houston. So he's a doctor of chiropractic medicine and he's a board certified clinical nutritionist. Also, the reason that I love Dr. Peter Osborne and what he does in his practice is because he specializes in ortho, molecular, and functional medicine. What that is is basically treating things by using supplements. He actually has his own pharmacy, and he treats a lot of different patients by fixing different things, such as vitamin B12 levels, magnesium levels, and basically everything under the sun that your body requires. So he talks about that in this episode, so you're going to get a lot of good information. Now, you can find him at glutenfreesociety.org, and there's a couple other different resources that we have, including a gluten intolerance test that is from his website. So I have that... in the show notes at notjustpaleo.com forward slash podcast one eight and you can go there and you can take this test and just learn about the sensitivity intolerance and, and learn that gluten free diet is just not a trend and that there actually is a ton of science behind this and it affects a lot more people that are unaware still Also, if you could take two to three minutes and head back over to iTunes and leave a review for the podcast, it would help a lot with ratings and it would help podcasts like this get out to more people. But now, I thank you for that and I'll let you get to the episode. We have Dr. Peter Osborne from Town Center Wellness on the podcast today, so I'm super excited for this episode. He's going to get into a bunch of stuff. We're going to get down to why the craze in gluten has occurred and a bunch of different other topics, and he's going to talk about some of his stories and how he's improved people's lives, and it's really amazing, and I'm so glad that you're a part of this podcast, so welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: So what I'm trying to figure out here is when and why has the gluten craze taken over in the past few years?
1: So really it started – it's been going on for years and years. Some celiac disease in its oldest form is known back even uh, dating in biblical times. But um, as far as its current popularity, I think mostly it's taken a foothold because so many people have tried going on a gluten-free diet and just felt so remarkably better no matter really what type of symptom they're having. But a lot of people with – IBS or gastrointestinal inflammatory disease not just celiac disease are are just trying to make diet change because the medicine and the treatment methodologies used by medicine are not all that effective and don't really work so they're kind of left without answers and left without hope so a lot of people kind of started as a grassroots movement a lot of people went gluten-free on their own or investigated going gluten-free and and found that when they felt better that that was all the really the answer that they needed and uh, me personally in my clinic in Houston I started diagnosing about 12 years ago patients with gluten sensitivity, and so kind of how I got started into it was, you know, I originally worked in the VA hospital in in rheumatology, and and I don't know how much you know about rheumatology, but the field is, you know, people with rheumatological disease like rheumatoid arthritis and scleroderma and dermatomyositis and lupus, these diseases will take 20 to 30 years off your life. Um, Most of these patients are completely miserable. Uh, they 're in a lot of pain, their quality of life is garbage, and the the medications used to treat them just don't do a whole lot and don't add a whole lot to it. so it 's kind of a, a, a bleak outlook for these folks and It was frustrating for me to work in that environment because being a doctor is about helping people, so you know when, you, when you're treating disease that just is not responsive to medicine, then the first question logically you ask yourself is, what do we need to change? What do we need to do differently? And, uh, and that's when I really you know started researching food in autoimmune disease and found that um, one of the biggest correlations was people who didn't eat or who fasted showed dramatic improvement very quickly and, in their symptoms with autoimmune disease. Uh, one of the other pieces of the puzzle that I found is that high levels of fish oil will help to reduce the inflammation from autoimmune disease. And kind of the missing element or piece of the puzzle was At the time in the research, the only known cause for any autoimmune disease was actually gluten, and that was as it related to celiac disease. So it made sense to me at the time in treating autoimmune disease to approach it from the perspective of looking at food because every bit of research that could validate improvement and valid improvement in patients would be to either change the food, reduce the food, or eliminate certain kinds of food. So, did you actually get people off of prescription medicine in this process? Uh, I didn't in the VA hospital; it wasn't allowed. Wow! So, I was really not allowed to do or deviate, even even though I went to my, you know, to my attending physicians and said, "Hey, look, I would like to pull a, a small sample of folks aside and just try some different things with them." I, it was not something that was really welcomed, and it was frowned upon. So, you know, out of frustration, I, I ended up leaving the VA hospital and. And going into private practice.
0: I and, think you um, made the right decision on that.
1: Well, I, I, I think I did too. One of my first patients was a, a terminal patient with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And they gave him six months to live. And um, that was about 11 years ago now. And today he's in high school and band. He's off all his medications and he's doing great. And it's all because of a few diet changes.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I think I saw that story on your website, Gluten Society Free. Is that the website?
1: well glutenfreesociety.org, dot org and yeah, Michael is his name, and he was you know one of my very first patients in private practice, and he's why I founded gluten free society and I just thought to myself, how many other terminal patients are out there who could who could really use this information, and they're just not able to get a hold of it so you know I sat down with my staff members and said, "How can we reach more people you know in a in a clinic setting, you see maybe five hundred new patients a year." You know, so multiply that by ten years, and you're really you're only seeing, you know, five thousand patients. You're only touching that few of of lives. And how many people are estimated with gluten sensitivity? There's at least ten million people that are estimated with gluten sensitivity. So, I had a, I had a daunting task in front of me help help, you know, thousands of people or help millions of people. So we founded the website, and uh, the second year out, we reached we reached a million people. And uh, the numbers just grow year after year because as the popularity of the gluten-free diet grows, people are seeking real answers. They just tend to find us.
0: That's amazing, man. So the reason I'm happy and so grateful that I was able to find you is because you were actually on a video that I saw online from a mainstream interview. And I just thought it was hilarious how the mainstream person interview you laughed when you said that we need to go grain-free and that gluten-free wasn't enough.
1: Yeah that it's it's funny. I mean, you know, I always say that some of the people that are the most resistant to diet change are the ones that initially told us we needed to make diet change. All the people in the celiac community um they they fought for years being disvalidated and trying to be validated and now many of the doctors and many of the people in that group when you tell them, "Hey, I know you've changed your diet and you've gone, you know, traditional wheat, barley and rye free, but you're still sick." So although maybe your celiac symptoms are improved, you're still sick and, you know, you need to take it to another level. A lot of them, you know, meet you with kind of irony or ridicule or just skepticism. And and it's just to me, it blows my mind because here these people have fought for validation and now they're not willing to look at diet as a further impact on their health. That only, only wheat, barley and rye could possibly create the symptoms is a ludicrous thought process. And uh, I think they're just repeating the same mistake that was repeated on them or that was done to them.
0: Wow. So how much improvement have you experienced when you switch people? Do you put people towards uh, the paleo diet? And if you do, are you experiencing a huge improvement in health going from gluten-free or vegan to paleo diet?
1: Well, I don't even, it's not even necessarily just the paleo diets. What we do in our clinic is we uh, We test. Um, everybody's different. You can take somebody who the paleo diet would be completely wrong for uh, because they don't properly digest meat very well. And so you throw, you know, a lot of red meat into their diet and it's going to send them into liver failure. It's going to create problems for them. So what we try to do is we try to identify through very specific testing methodologies what a person should and shouldn't eat. So we do comprehensive lab testing to determine you know what foods they're going to have uh, chemical reactions to that are inflammatory in nature. We do DNA testing to try to determine what types of food are going to be more conducive to their DNA. And so we try to basically, we try to surround that person or that individual's DNA with the right food environment so that we have an outcome of success. And so for many people, paleo is is, is absolutely a great diet to follow for some um, for some, not so much. As a matter of fact, I recently had a patient uh, from California who, following paleo, actually um, created some additional issues for her. And we, we had to make adjustments and modifications based on you know, a lab workup. And, and she actually had to go vegetarian. Wow. And so in her case, it was vegetarian but also gluten-free. So it was no grain. Right, It was no grain, no dairy, no sugar, but a vegetarian diet. So it wasn't a vegetarian diet like what most people think, which is laden with grains. Uh, But it was a full-on vegetable-based diet and a vegetable and fruit-based diet, and she's now thriving uh, doing those things.
0: That's amazing. So do you do testing before you do any diet changes?
1: I do. Um, I'm a big believer in the term biochemical individuality. That's a term coined by uh, bio— biologist Roger Williams he was a biochemist and and uh, he wrote a book over 50 years ago entitled that very thing biochemical individuality and he he always questioned what was normal right i mean where do we find fundamentally what is normal how do we define normal in in patients and so one person is normal is another person's abnormal right some people jump high some people run fast some people are good metabolizers of meat some people are bad metabolizers of meat so everybody has their own unique variances and differences and what is it that we can use as markers that we can identify these uniquenesses in, in patients and so that's where my career and my clinic have really have really emphasized and focused on is trying to tease out what those uniquenesses are in individuals so that we could customize their diet for what they need and not for I mean don't get me wrong I love the paleo diet and personally it's the it's a diet that works for me as an individual and in, you know even the testing I've done on myself you know reinforces that along with the way I feel but um but when you're in my clinic I deal with chronically ill patients many of them are dying or or close to death and so it's not just an issue of making a generic recommendation if that makes sense
0: yeah. we're
1: really we're really trying to be very very specific because a lot of times life is on the line that is that is the issue um and so You know, we have to be as specific as we can, and and although generic advice can go a long way, and somebody who's already kind of relatively healthy, and they're just trying to look to tweak, to improve, to make something better, this is why doctors write books, you know, to offer generic advice or generalized advice to the masses. But when you're dealing with disease, it's a lot harder to make generalized advice uh, because you'll hit a snag, and then the person, if they're – it's like this. If a person is – suspecting that a paleo diet might might work better for them or how do you assure that they're going to be compliant to the diet for the rest of their life if you know it's the right diet for them to follow and then how do they justify all those changes for the rest of their life right because if you look at all the examples in our history of diet change you know there's atkins there's south beach and before that grapefruit 45 hollywood diets there's all these different diets that come and go the zone right and so they're all basically diets written by doctors that generalize, right? And so if you customize it for the patient and you can show them in black and white this is what they need to do, then you increase their compliance and therefore you increase their success. Because you, you remember in the 90s, a lot of people went on Atkins and felt a lot better. All the people that do well on paleo felt great and lost weight uh, when they went on the Atkins diet because they cut out grain. And yeah. um but, but then what happened was they did it for six months, right? And then they went back to doing what they did before, and they got fat again, and they got sick again. And so you know it, the issue that I've always had is we, if we're going to make the change, we, we want to make it based on valid science and necessity. Is it something that you need to do for the rest of your life? And it, if it is, it's not a diet for a temporary benefit. It's a lifelong diet that you need to follow and, and stay on in order to maintain your health not just to get to a point of health, but to maintain it. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that you got to maintain it because I feel like a lot of people that are new to it, it can kind of feel like a trend and it can kind of feel like a, just a temporary thing in your life because you're going for a goal. But at a certain point in time, you don't have to really go for a goal anymore and you don't have to be so focused on it you know I think it just becomes routine and you don't you don't have to think about it as much because I think you can get discouraged from all the changes you have to make if you're coming from the standard American diet
1: yeah absolutely
0: and I love the testing and it's amazing that it's not cookie cutter so are you treating people that are just diseased or are you just treating everyday people that just want to get healthier also
1: Uh, most of my patient base is autoimmune disease we treat you know mostly autoimmune rheumatoid Uh, hypothyroidism are probably two of the most common conditions that that i see clinically in my office and then you know the battery and the array of gastrointestinal disturbances people come to see me for every once in a while i get people who are just wanting to be better they they already perform at a high level you know they're an athlete and they they want to take it to another level they want to customize their diet they want to tweak and they want to get you know an extra second an extra two seconds an extra 10 pounds that kind of thing so you know, I, I I accommodate with athletes as well. I'm an avid CrossFitter, so I'm not unfamiliar to the rigors of strength training and exercise training. And um, you know, I'm always open to helping those kinds of folks out. Also,
0: that's awesome. Yeah, I wanted to get into your fitness routine in a little bit, but I was going to ask: Are there things that you should look for if you're a if you already feel healthy? and you are on the paleo diet and you feel like you have no problems would it still benefit you to get a test done and see what you may be having a reaction to even if you feel okay
1: well i recommend it and you know i can share my own story with you i um you know in in testing you know myself uh, i didn't feel bad when i initially went gluten-free i wasn't i wasn't even gluten free at the time i didn't feel bad and you know health is a relative entity and Health is, is is kind of summarized as your environmental influences over your DNA. And so, you know, being young and younger people tend to have more resilience and more adaptability, you know, because disease is is really kind of a manifestation of damage over time, right? And so the older we get, we tend to start breaking down and becoming less resilient and not as capable at handling the environment as well. And so if you feel good, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're healthy. Although it's a good start, it's certainly I don't I don't say it to put fear in everybody's you know, to put fear in everybody's mind about, oh my gosh, I need to become a hypochondriac and, and look for things that aren't there. But if you can custom your diet, why wouldn't you? If you if you can discern that, you know, every time you eat a particular food it causes underlying inflammation that builds over time and can contribute to disease, would you change that? I mean that's why people exercise, they exercise because preventatively they know if they can maintain or build muscle that it's going to not only make them look better and feel better, but it's going to help them maintain their activity and their quality of life as they go through it. So I look at diet much in the same way. You tweak and you modify to improve upon what is already there.
0: So how long have you been into CrossFit?
1: Uh, I've been doing CrossFit now for a couple of years. Prior to that, I – I, going through graduate school, I was a personal trainer and I wouldn't call myself ever a professional bodybuilder, but I, I was a kind of amateur. I didn't compete, but I just, I was a bodybuilder. I, I worked out aggressively. Um, I'm five, eight, I weighed about 200 pounds. So, um, you know, I was I a decently big guy and it was just, what I found was as I, as I trained aggressively with heavy weight, um, maintaining that as I got into my 30s early 30s mid 30s became more of a daunting task ma- mainly because just to push the weight you know on a regular basis to maintain the size
0: right
1: you know you sacrifice the structure of the joints and sometimes it's not you know it's just not the greatest thing in the world to do for the rest of your life and so I like I liked, that's when I found CrossFit and uh, I really like CrossFit for its functional training methodology. I mean, you 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 have alter, alternating and varied workouts. You have strength training as well as metabolic conditioning. So you kind of get a mingle and a mix and it never gets old because the workouts are always different. You don't have to think about it. I can just show up at my box and, you know, the coaches there pre-program something in that they're going to challenge me every day and uh, they're going to help me maintain what I've already achieved and built and they're going improve, to improve upon it.
0: That's awesome. So, does the group setting help you compared to just going into the gym and just lifting by yourself?
1: Absolutely. You know, I, I tried P ninety X years ago and got through it. It was it was a tough program. Um, the you know in the in the conundrum with it was you know most people if they're not in shape already are not going to complete a P ninety X program. Uh, one because of the lack of motivation, the lack of other people. I mean, if they do it in a group setting, they're going to have greater success. But two. Because it's, it's a rigorous program, and if you're not in shape, you know, you really, for that kind of training, you have to train for a living. Um, your average guy goes to work 9 to 5 and then comes home and has to spend time with family and, you know, potentially do outside of the office work. Uh, they're not going to have the recovery ability to get something done that aggressively and be successful at it repetitively for long periods of time. So um, that's where I really like CrossFit because it's scalable. You can take the workout and you can modify it to your skill level, to your strength level, and you can scale it up accordingly. And you have a group setting. And I, I like the herd mentality. I like um, I like it knowing that somebody that's faster than me is gonna set a pace that I'm gonna have to stick with and come as close to that as possible. And somebody who's slower than me may be nipping at my heels and they're gonna push me harder than what I would push myself if I were all alone and it didn't matter.
0: Right. Yeah, I have a lot of people asking me if there's any advice that you have on how to keep up because a lot of the people that are my listeners and followers are women that are 40, 45 years old and they're having trouble keeping up. So do you think just whatever works for them because I don't want them to get too high of cortisol levels and just wear themselves out and cause more damage?
1: Yeah, so the best advice would be realism. Women have a problem, and I don't—I don't mean to say this and, and like generically say all women have this problem, but in my experience, women who are who are trying to train and get back in shape, they—they're coming in with an, a kind of a mindset that's not realistic because, and it's—and it's not because they're trying to be unrealistic; it's more so because, you know, they're being bombarded with pictures of airbrushed women. They're being bombarded with. Basically, marketing and advertising lies. you know, the show's like The Biggest Loser where a person gets to go off for months and just train and sleep and have their food prepared for them. That's not realistic.
0: Absolutely. So to
1: see those kinds of results, it's not a realistic expectation for these women, and, and especially if they're coming from a point of being out of shape and being older and potentially having other types of problems like hormone issues, etc. So my advice for any woman who's getting into it new is you have to give it 18 months. 18 months in your mind is kind of a goal to achieve a, a steady state metabolism and a good quality muscle tone foundation so that you can start really becoming competitive if you want to be competitive. But uh, prior to that point, you're, bu- you're in building mode. So you have to scale to the level of your ability and know that you're doing that and not really look at it as if you know, you're trying to achieve something faster than what is possible. Um, you have to have a realistic expectation and I, and I say 18 months and that, that's not, that doesn't hold true a hundred percent across the board. You you have some people that, that destroy that 18 months and do it in three. Um, but usually those ones have a, a background of a strong physical, um, history. So like maybe they were gymnasts at one point in their life, or maybe they were a track athlete, or maybe they did some other type of sport. So they, they have built in muscular coordination and muscle memory. And so for them, it's not about learning things from the ground up. It's about relearning muscular coordination. It's about regrowing muscle that they already had at one point in their life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, so it's having a realistic expectation from where you have been in life and where you are currently. And if you've been out of the gym for five years, you're not building all that back in six months. Um, you're just not. The body is dynamic, and it can, and it can respond to, to working out into to good diet. But don't expect, uh, you know, if you're 35 or 40, don't expect a 25-year-old body in, you know, in a few months. It's just not a realistic expectation. Prime your mind for 18 months. If you happen to do it faster, then pat yourself on the back and keep going. Yeah, yeah.
0: Do you think that CrossFit is the best type of exercise to combine with your grain-free diet, or do you just recommend starting out with a slow pace, let's say a complete beginner that has no muscle memory?
1: I'd say complete beginner. If if they're considering CrossFit, a a lot of CrossFit gyms across the country have what they call on-ramp programs, which are programs that teach movement, programs that teach basic fundamentals, programs that keep you out of trouble and keep you from getting injured. Because um, you don't want to walk into a CrossFit box if you've never done it and work out with all the people who've been doing it for six months or a year, um, you'll get hurt. So for those people, go through you know an introductory course, um, be introduced to the components of CrossFit, to the movements, and you know master the movements before you try to master them with speed and with heavy weight. It's, it's just fundamentals. You don't learn how to slam dunk the basketball before you learn how to dribble or shoot it.
0: Right. That's great. Yeah, I've noticed a stepping stone effect too in bodybuilding. Just starting out on machines, say five years ago, and then just slowly transitioning to a lot more advanced things with balls and dumbbells and stuff like that that used to seem impossible to do. So it's fun to see that progress. Absolutely. So what are your what are some of your favorite exercises?
1: Uh, I love pull ups. Yeah. I like I like a I like athletic. Kind of body weight gymnastic stuff, so you know muscle ups, ring dips, pull ups uh anything that requires me to use upper body strength and, and lifting my body into the air or off the ground um not and not as much, I don't like the squatting, I don't like the but I mean you know what you don't like, you work on it's kind of the way I yeah, I look at it too, but I've just i you know people are gifted in different ways, and I've just always been uh fortunate to be. To be more that upper body kind of gymnast type of athlete, Um, whereas other people um, that don't have that tend to be maybe stronger at squatting or stronger at at deadlifting, etc.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely the same with you. Definitely more upper body strength. Leg day is always a a hard day to get through for me. So, are you are you doing the inner grip or the outer grip on pull ups?
1: I I do a little bit of variance, so I like to. I like to pull up with a wide grip, a narrow grip, a medium grip. I like to use reverse grip. I like to do um, ring pull-ups, and then also um, kips and butterflies, which are kind of varied versions of of pull-ups that use body weight and hip uh, hip force and transition force to to be able to accomplish more. Um, I think they're all they're all good forms of exercise. Uh, it's it, again, I like it. I like to vary it, and sometimes I even like to do weighted pull-ups.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. You do the belt around your waist and put a forty-five on.
1: Yeah, yeah, or a kettlebell, some kettlebells and plated weights. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you do any stretching, and do you have any favorite stretches that you perform or that you teach people to do? Do you focus on physical training too, or just diet?
1: Um, with my patients, I don't, I don't like go through and teach them all that I know. I've got some online videos on gluten-free society that go through basic fundamentals and principles of exercise along with diet, uh, just so that they have something as a go-to plan to Mm -hmm. implement. Uh, as far as flexibility is concerned, I'm a big yoga fan. I love, uh, I love yoga. I think it's probably one of the most underutilized ways to become flexible. And, uh, I tell you who's got a really good yoga program is, uh, P90X has a great 90 minute yoga video. Um, it it, it will loosen up your hips it will open up your hips it will open up your shoulders and if you've got uh, tight gastroc or calf problems it's really going to do to take you uh take you away from that and loosen you up tremendously but i like yoga um some people go to pilates and pilates is pretty good as well but i like yoga i try to get it in at least once a week a good 60 to 90 minute session and then beyond that um Flexibility is always worked into my worked into my workouts so, uh, again I, I, I kinda default to CrossFit because a good CrossFit gym and a good CrossFit coach is gonna have mobility worked in to their pre workout. So before you go in and, and start the workout, they'll have you do different mobilization drills or techniques to kinda loosen and open up the different areas that might be problematic during the routine.
0: That's great. So is yoga your form of meditation or do you have a different way for that too?
1: No yoga. I don't really use it to meditate. I'm, I'm, I'm. Um, as far as meditation is concerned, I just try to take time out of the day and relax and self-contemplate. I like to be able to, to think about, you know, what I've done, what I've accomplished, what I need to do, what I need to accomplish. And then I also like to be able to think about nothing, right? So as you always say idle time is the devil's work, but I sometimes find that idle time is a necessity to get away from the busy go-go-go status of the world.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's why I'm grateful that I get to work outside in a 4,000-acre park. I get to walk out in the woods, and it uh, just being forced to listen to nothing but running water and the birds, it really kind of pauses time for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So how much – Uh, importance do you think stress and cortisol reduction is in this whole process and are there ways that we can speed it up beyond exercise and diet
1: well fundamentally um the more stress we're under the more cortisol we produce and over time the more stress and the more stress load the less cortisol we produce so initially we have it heightened cortisol response that subsequently what follows is something called adrenal burnout or adrenal failure and then we end up in low cortisol status and we can't support exercise or or normal fundamental quality of life. Best way to reduce and keep cortisol to kind of a normalization, I don't want to say to a low because I don't believe that it should be low necessarily. It's a it's a circadian hormone, meaning it peaks, it, it comes up and goes down at certain times of the day. But I think fundamentally diet exercise the adequate amount of sleep is critical, uh, 10, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. as a bare minimum of hours to sleep and preferably longer on both ends of that. But 10 to 2 is when our body and our hormone tries to reset, our circadian rhythm and cortisol levels try to reset. In addition, I think a lot of people are under uh, too much stress in their life. They work too hard or they don't like what they do. And I always say, you know, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day of, in your whole life. And so there are too many people that are unhappy in the workplace because what they do is, is a stress. So they hate their boss, they hate their job, and that creates a source of chronic, uh, chronic stress load in their life. Or they're, you, maybe they're in a relationship that they didn't want to be in or that they don't want to be in. Um, so you know, that's not to say that a person should go through life stress-free. I, their stresses in different times of life will bring different forms of stress. You got to embrace them, and you got to take on the challenge as you as you come across them. But to allow your body to be resilient at adapting and handling distress, you got to sleep appropriately. You've got to eat appropriately. You've got to drink water that is free and devoid of chemicals and medications and other other problematic materials, pollutants. Uh, You got to be able to drink clean air. You got to get plenty of sunshine. A lot of people avoid the sun and use SPFs that block vitamin D and, and uh, that in and of itself can create cortisol dysregulation. So I think fundamentally, if we look at all the things a person should be doing, should be getting sleep, they should be getting sunshine, they should treat sunshine the way they treat a cup of water. They should be getting adequate hydration. They should be reducing as many toxic exposures in their life as possible. So toxic be, can be pollutants, it can be food, it can be people that they're calling themselves or the people that they're calling friends who aren't really friends. Um, and they should approach their life, very holistically and try to manage the stress. The I mean, stress is always going to be there, but you know, we want to try to manage it and make it a reasonable amount.
0: Right, yeah. I was going to ask you, can you, get, can you go into the sunscreen aspect?
1: Well, sunscreens are carcinogens, and they're actually so applying sunscreen on a regular basis is linked to skin cancer just as much as, as uh, getting sunburned frequently. Now, I think you have to judge it based on what you're going to do. If you've got good skin tone and you can tolerate... You know, 30 minutes of sunlight without burning and you can tolerate an hour or two hours of sunlight without burning, then, then you should tolerate that. Uh, if you just stay inside all the time and that's why you're pale, then I think you should slowly, incrementally increase your exposure to sun so that your skin can produce pigment to protect you. I mean, naturally, we all make pigment in our skin that's going to protect us from UV radiation. But if you want to do something naturally for sunscreen, Eat some blueberries. Blueberries are very high in uh, paranthrocyanidins. These are chemicals that just the same chemicals that protect the blueberry from shriveling up in the sun in the middle of the summer are the same chemicals that can protect your skin and and offer a uh, UV barrier for you. So eat real food that contains natural sunscreens within it that are going to help your cells combat UV radiation as you're being exposed to UV radiation, and don't fear UV radiation your skin through the through the exposure to sunlight makes vitamin d but there are new chemicals that are being identified that are produced by sun exposure on the skin that fight cancer and that help the body's immune system regulate and without these chemicals and without these uh, vitamins you can increase your risk for autoimmune disease development as a matter of fact vitamin d deficiency is linked to 19 different terminal cancers it's linked to diabetes and blood sugar dysregulation it's linked to congestive heart failure it's linked to the uh, progenesis of autoimmune disease. So why would we trade the risk of a skin cancer for all these other diseases? It just It's not an even trade. So I would say lay off of the sunscreen, but also use common sense. Don't get a sunburn, but don't use sunscreen if it's not necessary to use.
0: Vitamin D3, is that enough, or are there other supplements that you should be doing?
1: Um, well, you know, supplementation is one of those things that I also test for just because I like to be very specific about what a person needs. You, my, my advice to somebody who's not doing any testing is, yes, take a good, high-quality, pharmaceutical-grade multivitamin. Ditch One a Day, Ditch Centrum, and all those other brands that are out there that that promote because they're not they're not good quality and they're not going to give you any benefit to speak of. So you want a good, high-quality, pharmaceutical-grade multivitamin. And then if your diet's clean, you're probably going to get enough omega-3 if you're eating grass-fed beef and and uh, wild caught fish, so you don't necessarily need to worry about supplementing with a fish oil. Um, and if you're and if you're outside and you're getting enough outdoor exposure and you're eating fermented foods like sauerkraut and and uh, and kimchi, then you should shouldn't necessarily need to take a probiotic unless unless um, unless there's an underlying pathological factor that requires you to do so. Like for example, taking an antibiotic for an infection, you should take a probiotic to accommodate that antibiotic but beyond that um i test so i measure for vitamin levels in my patients you know i measure the major minerals and i measure all the b vitamins and you know chromium and selenium and copper and zinc all these different nutrients so that i know what do, what do they need what do they need to recover cuz their diet may be providing already some very valid sources of nutrients and if their diet's providing it and they're eating real food and they're eating real food that's good for them then we need a lot less pills when that happens not just drugs but including uh, vitamin supplements.
0: Wow! So I'm curious to see what's the most common deficiencies.
1: Uh, for for my patient base, the most common, hands down, is vitamin B12. Wow! Yeah, vitamin B12 is extremely common, and that mainly because gluten sensitivity destroys the cells in the stomach responsible for um, helping us to digest vitamin B12 from the meat that we eat.
0: Wow. So, do you recommend a topical or sublingual or a
1: capsule of? A Actually, type? yeah, I have my own formulation of methylcobalamin. Methylcobalamin is the most bioavailable and bioactive form of vitamin B twelve, uh, and I, I have it formulated under, uh, for under the tongue so that it's absorbed into the capillaries underneath the tongue, because a lot of my patients have gastrointestinal dysfunction. And if you take vitamin B12 and and swallow it and expect to get good absorption out of it and you have a gut problem, then you're going to be sorely upset when it doesn't work for you. So going through directly into the bloodstream through sublingually is is one of the most effective ways to give it.
0: So does topical work as good?
1: I haven't seen any research on topical being more effective than, than sublingual, and I haven't really had any clinical experience working with topical. So I would be remiss to to say one way or the other because I just don't have the experience in working with it. But uh, I've never met a patient that we couldn't correct a B12 deficiency with by using a sublingual.
0: That's great. So what other things are going to improve for you when you start to fix your vitamin B12 levels besides energy?
1: Uh, Yeah, energy is number one. But a lot of people can develop with B12 deficiency brain fog. Uh, clouded thinking, lack of memory or inability to have good short-term memory. So a lot of that brain fog tends to clear up. Depression is is dramatically linked to vitamin B12 deficiency. B12 is also necessary to form the myelin sheath around the nerves. And so some people will develop numbness, tingling, or radiating uh, sensations down their arms and legs like restless leg syndrome or neuropathy. And so those those types of things tend to clear up. And then in addition, vitamin B12 deficiency has also been linked to bone loss. It's been linked to uh, cardiovascular inflammation. So those things you don't necessarily feel improving, but uh, deficiency can lead to those diseases over the long haul. So it's nice to get those things corrected to reduce the risk of subsequent disease.
0: That makes perfect sense. So do you have any other supplements or is it just the B12 that you work on?
1: No, we work on all of them. I mean, we, we there are about forty different essential nutrients. Essential meaning the body cannot survive without them. And so we we, we test for the critical essential nutrients, and we supplement accordingly in patients.
0: Right. So, do you have a special formula though, besides your vitamin B twelve product? Yeah. You cut out like the last probably forty five seconds or so.
1: Oh, okay. Well, let me repeat the the uh, the answer then. So you asked me if I used any other supplements or formulations. And, and the answer to that is, uh, I have a pharmacy in my clinic with about 200 or more uh, different preparations and special formulations, um, just depending on the person's condition, depending on what their deficiencies are. So literally, if you've seen it, I've worked with it. Uh, if you've heard of it, I've worked with it. And uh, it's it's just, it varies from person to person. There's not like one magic bullet that, that I say, everybody do, do this.
0: Right. So, do you have things that are over-the-counter products, too?
1: Well, everything I use in my pharmacy is pharmaceutical grade. Um, I deal directly with a number of the different manufacturers to ensure that not only are they GMP certified, but to ensure that we have actual pharmaceutical value to the to the reference range of the dosing of the product, Um so when dealing with diseases, you you can't mess around with you know with over the counter. You can't mess around with just generics because you know if you're treating a disease and you say okay, go over to you know GNC or go over to the health food store and buy you know some B12 sublingually. You know what you don't know is whether or not what they're buying is actually working, and you don't want to wait six months to find out.
0: Wow. So are there any companies that you know of that? Say that we don't have someone in the area like you that can get us these high quality supplements, and the doctor that they work with let's just assume that they couldn't find one in the area um like pure encapsulations are they gonna have stuff that is high high enough quality, or do you have any recommendations?
1: I used to like pure encapsulations, but they they actually were bought they were they were bought out, and their quality has deteriorated since then. Um, But, yeah, there's some other recommendations generically. um, If you've got Whole Foods nearby, there's a company called Nature's Way, and they do a pretty good product line. And not Nature's Made. Nature's Made is another brand that I don't have a whole lot of faith in. So there's also a company called Now that puts out some decent products. Uh, For herbals, there's a company called Gaia Herbs, and they put out a pretty good array of different products. For fish oil, there's Nordic Naturals, and they have a pretty good brand. And lineup of different oils so i mean there's a number of reputable companies and i you know again i i i'm not saying that the companies that are out there that are over the counter aren't necessarily decent or aren't necessarily doing things right it's just in my scenario we're talking about a clinical setting i have to be able to control the ingredients so that i can control the outcome so that if the outcome that we're looking for is not achieved i'm not speculating as to whether or not it was the walmart brand you know, a vitamin C that worked or didn't work. You know what I mean? So I've ruled out that variable completely, and now I can go in and say, okay, they're not getting better, and it's not because we didn't get correction of of nutritional loss. It's because of some other factor that needs to be investigated.
0: You're that specific with stuff like that. You have to be, I guess.
1: Well, you, you don't have a choice. And I think a lot of people go to a functional medicine or go to a doctor um, yeah. who dabbles, what I call a dabbler, And the reason they don't do well or the reason they don't get better is because the doctor they're seeing is a dabbler and they don't really have a lot of experience and they don't really, they're not really specific. They don't have a degree of specificity in what they do. And again, I'm not saying all doctors are bad, but there are a number of them out there. They claim to be nutritionists or they claim to, you know, treat different conditions and their approach and their methodologies and their sciences that they're, that they're basing things on are not fundamentally sound. And so what you end up with is a, is a, is a patient who thinks they've gone that route and it didn't work for them, and they've now ruled that route out as a possible avenue to get their help that they need and They really haven't ruled that route out; they've just been to a bad doctor, kind of the same analogy. you can hire a plumber and to come out and fix your toilet, and you know you get good and bad in every profession, and you may get the bad plumber and your toilet's still broke, right You don't rule out plumbers forever just because your toilet's still broke. you find another one who does the job right
0: right. Something I wanted to ask you about when it comes to celiac disease. Are you able to prevent the removal of the gallbladder? Because I've I've read a lot about people getting it out.
1: Yeah, if you catch it, if you can catch it in time, you can you can stop gallbladder surgery from being this necessary. A lot of gallbladders are removed unnecessarily anyway. But yeah, I mean it's not a hard organ to save. The the, the main issue, and, and especially with gluten sensitivity, um, because gluten is known to damage the liver, damage the gallbladders. Uh, contractibility but it also can change the nature of the viscosity of the bile and so it makes stones form and when stones form it you know can alter the function and the output of the gallbladder so yeah it's not a hard thing to treat it's just uh it requires the right approach and uh yeah i've saved a number of gallbladders in my career over the last 13 years and you know I've seen a number of people come in to me that have had their gallbladders removed that uh, unfortunately they didn't come to me soon enough.
0: I can't believe that there's so many people that get them removed before they even get diagnosed for celiac. So is that uh, something that the mainstream doesn't do? Do they not test for celiac before they remove it?
1: Well, some do and some don't. The problem is in the testing. If the methodology of the testing isn't accurate, but it's used as accurate then then it can be misleading, so when we test for some for celiac disease, it's a very specific set of tests that are run and the problem is is the tests are not definitive, so you could have a patient who has celiac disease, but their tests come back negative. This has been a problem, and we've known about it for thirty years, and the medical research is inundated with with um with research papers and and findings that that state this but uh unfortunately, doctors say, oh, well, you didn't test positive for celiac disease. And then they, they fundamentally, they say, you don't have it, move on. As opposed to saying, well, the tests are not accurate and it's still possible that you could have it. It's just that these tests that we did are not all that accurate. So maybe we want to consider a trial gluten-free diet instead. That typically doesn't happen. Wow. What, what typically happens is, yeah, I eat all the gluten you want. I've talked to a lot of, over the years, I've talked to a lot of, of GI docs who... Fundamentally, couldn't tell you more about gluten than the average person on the street. Really? Yeah.
0: So I guess it's just a lack of education that's the problem then.
1: Well, I know what I was taught about gluten when I went through grad school, and it wasn't very much. It was, you know, celiac disease is rare, and you'll see it in 1 in 20,000 patients, and learn what the disease is so that when you take the test, you can pass the test, but beyond that, don't worry about it. I mean, that's that's basically... Uh, the breakdown. I'm sure that's changing now, with gluten sensitivity being at the forefront of a lot of great new and exciting research. But um, you know, when I went to school, that was that was pretty much the case.
0: That's crazy. So, do you think that we're experiencing a shift, or is it just the people that are making a difference, like you, that are just creating a huge wave? Is it just going to slowly override the mainstream's education, or how's it gonna how's it gonna work out in the future?
1: Well, I think I think medicine is a business, and people have to see it that way. So fundamentally, you know, the problem in medicine has always been its affiliation with churches or the names of churches, like Methodist Hospital or you know Saint Luke's, etc. And so people look more at medicine not as a business, but more as uh, almost kind of like a charitable uh, charitable component. And it's not; it's a business. So doctors are go to school, spend a lot of money getting an education, so that they can make a nice income and a nice living. And so you know, that that is the bottom line. So I think what alters and what creates a movement, what creates a grassroots effort to change a fundamental belief in the way we think and see and view health is the customer, the customer who doesn't get better. If you were to take any other business, um, business model and do with it what we've done with medicine, that business model would have failed and gone out of business a long time ago. Medicine is the only business model other than government that I can think of that continues to fail their customer year after year because they don't, you know, and this isn't, again, this isn't 100% true in all cases because I don't want to say this and make everybody think that I think that medicine is evil and bad because I don't believe that to be the case. Medicine is, you know, for for acute conditions like gunshots and people who break bones and things of that nature, medicine is very valid and they do better saving lives than any other form anywhere in the world. But when it comes to treating chronic degenerative diseases and looking at food as medicine – and looking at lifestyle choices as a form of medicine, we have the poorest healthcare system in the world. It's just, it's just not designed or, or, or catering around those components or elements. So I think grassroots effort. Patients are going to seek out different kinds of doctors, doctors who will accommodate nutrition, doctors who will accommodate lifestyle changes. I mean, if you go, I, I like to say, if you go to a stockbroker to get money investment advice, and he's broke. How, how good or sound do you think his advice is going to be? Well, think about that in terms of your doctor. If you go to your doctor and your doctor's never really stretched, never really exercised, doesn't really know what yoga is and doesn't have any fundamental knowledge on diet and nutrition, how good is his advice going to be no matter how many books he's read, right? You can read a book on, on, on a particular subject or topic and you can know about that topic. that doesn't, doesn't make your experience valid and it doesn't make your advice sound uh, just because you've read a book you know the, the the translation is from textbook to actuality and i can tell you i read a number of textbooks on all types of topics and uh until you actually implement and until you actually do uh the learning is not done you're just a you're just a student repeating what you what you've heard and not necessarily guiding somebody based on your experiences and i think again fundamentally that's where medicine needs to go and i think grassroots-wise, I think people are going to demand that change. The internet has put forth the ability for people to get access to information instantaneously. And so we're a more educated mass of people today than what we were 30 years ago. And I think that doctors are aware of that. And if they don't fundamentally change the nature of the way they do things, they're going to find themselves going out of business.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad that you actually live by example. We'll have to put a picture up when I put up the show notes for the podcast because your arms are ripped, man.
1: Well, like you know, I got to practice what I preach. Otherwise, what kind of a preacher would I be?
0: Exactly. That's incredible, man. I love that. I think there's going to be a lot happier people because I've experienced that before too when I go in. The few times I go to the doctor, the mainstream doctor, I guess, and it just – it's kind of a creepy place.
1: Yeah, it can be. A lot of docs' offices are very gloomy and um, and uh, feel very cold.
0: Yeah, I always tell people that if I were to d- design a hospital, I know it's a business, but still, I would put in plants and have little fountains and waterfalls running in every patient's room and have uh, you know some alpha waves playing in the background and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, they're already nervous enough that you have an environment that makes them even more… We use lavenders all through our office as calming color because lavender is just very, very relaxing. So our walls and our carpet and our furniture and curtains are all uh, kind of themed in that, in that direction just to provide kind of an ability of relaxation.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you could describe your perfect picture of a healthy restoration office.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't think perfect is perfect for any one person, but I think a good place to start would be um to have a place that's warm and inviting that feels more like a home and less like a like a um like a cutting board. I don't know, that's the best way I can describe the way a hospital feels in my, you know, to me it feels it feels like a very sterile environment with um you know, not a lot of home in it. And to me, home and laughter and, uh, and and the environment around you is, is just as important in the healing process as using the right medicines or, or having the right bedside manner or having the right attitude, etc.
0: Environment of the hospital, I've noticed my dad just had to have surgery. He had to get 16 inches of his colon removed just from a lifetime of diverticulitis. And it was a – it's a huge surgery, so he's going to be healing for a long time. But you're right. They basically come in and look. In his situation, it was a little more extreme, but – I feel like they just want to come in and cut something out and then get you, kick you out and send you the thirty thousand dollar bill
1: well you know i can't I can't speak for what they wanna do, but yeah, you're right. sometimes it can feel that way um It can be a cold place and i I don't fault the doctors in the hospital for for um necessarily being bad people. I just think it's a system of of education and it's just a way that it's been done for so long that you know Change usually comes as a result of somebody seeing a better way and improving upon. And I think that's where we're going to – I'm hoping that's where we're really going to see medicine go in the next 10 years uh, is, is improving.
0: Yeah, I heard you mention probiotics and how you should – you should you not take them for a long term? I mean are these things that – is it going to hurt to take over a year or two of it?
1: I don't necessarily think that it's going to hurt. We get exposure to probiotics naturally every day. If you play outside, digging the dirt, if you touch a doorknob, I mean, you're getting forms of bacteria on a regular basis uh, just through touch. Um, I just, you know, a lot of people take probiotics religiously, and I just don't know that necessarily that's something that you have to do if you're, if the rest of your lifestyle choices are conducive to uh, to healthy probiotics.
0: That's great. So I guess you could be saving a little bit of money and worry then.
1: Yeah, and you can, and I again, I don't think it's necessarily harmful, It could potentially be helpful. But you know, one of the I make the de- de- delineation to give probiotics based on a patient's presentation and history versus just saying everybody needs to be on them. I personally don't use them. I eat enough fermented food and get enough outdoor activity that uh, that it's not necessarily a necessity for me to maintain health. And there's testing that can be done that we can measure. The type of bacteria that colonize the gut, um, we can, we can measure all these different components. So, you know, again, I look I look to I look to determine what a person needs versus what a, what just randomly taking something.
0: Right, that's great. Well, I think we're coming up on time, so I definitely appreciate you coming on. This was awesome and definitely mind blowing for me. You opened up a lot of new revenues for me to research and help people out so thank you so much for what you do
1: yeah well you're welcome and thanks for having me on i always enjoy sharing information where i can
0: yeah i'll definitely like to have you back on and go into a couple other subjects because you have so much great experience and one-on-one success stories with this so i just i'd love to get more into that another time yeah sure thing is there anything else that you have on your mind to tell people
1: I'll just say if they suspect that they might be gluten sensitive, a good place to start is – and I can send you this link in an email and you can – if you want to post it. um, Sure. We have a gluten intolerance quiz that can be taken online, and uh, it's a quick quiz. They can take it, and if it's positive, it comes back positive, it might be something that's helped for them to go and get proper testing done so that they can make a decision to change their diet permanently as opposed to just a temporary – Kind of quick fix or trend and then from there glutenfreesociety.org is is kind of my arm my foundation for helping people learn about gluten and getting educated about what it is and and what the diet actually means and how to embark upon it
0: right so i guess everybody down in houston i guess if someone locally is listening to this can they come on in
1: it's about a two to three month wait to get into my office as a patient but um You know, they could uh, they could certainly set up an appointment or they could come to one of our we have meetings on a regular basis as well for for the community. So they're always welcome to come to one of those meetings.
0: Okay, great. Well, yeah, we'll definitely post the links up to that to the show notes so people can try to get a hold of you. All right. Yeah. Thanks again, man. I hope you have a great night. Thanks. You too. We'll talk to you soon, man. Okay. Bye. That was an incredible episode for me. Dr. Osborne is seriously loaded with information, so that was hard to cram all of that into less than an hour, so I hope you got a lot from that show. This is one of those shows where you need to get a pen and paper or get your to-do list out and write some stuff down. I think that it's definitely a great idea to get tested for gluten sensitivity. I'm definitely going to get tested myself just because there's been so much hype and a lot of new knowledge that's coming to the forefront of the health industry about gluten and how many people it actually affects. So I think it would be a good idea for you to check it out too. In the show notes on notjustpaleo.com forward slash podcast 18, I'm going to have the link to Dr. Osborne's gluten sensitivity test. So definitely go check that link out. And you can check out his website once again at glutenfreesociety.org. And I'll have the link to that in the show notes as well. And like I said, if you could take about two minutes and head back over to iTunes and leave a review for this podcast, it would help so much, and I thank you very much for that. I hope that you can share this information with all of your friends and family and that we can create a happier and healthier society because we got to get moving on this train now or it's going to be too late. So thanks for thanks for everything you all do. Thanks for being supportive and thanks for making me smile and make me wake up and, and do this because this is what... This is what my life journey is about. So thank you for being a part of it. He acts like it's a good year, like everything's cool. Kiss a girl tonight, never leaves her. She doesn't have a clue that he's never even close. Why I'm in a tire I got mean to you, watch out, girl. Don't want to see her, put her eyes out, girl. Because I've been watching,
1: you've been hurting. Let me be the one that loves you.